Distinguished guests, a very good morning to all of you. First, congratulations to IPS on your 35th anniversary. Milestones like this are a timely reminder to reflect about the road travel and the paths ahead. It is fitting that IPS has chosen to focus on revisiting our social, political, and economic foundations how far they have brought us, and how much we must continue to evolve them to take us forward amidst the new challenges. IPS' decision to kickstart proceedings today by revisiting, by revisiting meritocracy speaks to how it has been a core pillar of Singapore's story and our success. For this morning's panel, let me share how meritocracy must evolve to continue to enable Singapore to defy the odds of history, for us to attract talent and secure our relevance in a fragmenting world, for us to create new economic opportunities for our businesses in a fragile global economic order, and to distinguish ourselves as a cohesive, compassionate and caring people amidst a fractious world. Let me start by looking at what meritocracy is. Simply put, meritocracy is a system in which people and ideas are recognized, rewarded, and respected based on how they perform, rather than who they are or where they come from. As a young nation, Singapore could have chosen many ways to organize and govern ourselves. The rich and well-connected could have demanded to lead and to bestow favourable positions on their family and friends. You can think of plutocracy, aristocracy, or even nepotism. Amidst racial tensions and strife, we could also have allowed only certain ethnic groups to rise based on their proportion, background, or heritage. Again, we can think of majoritarianism, of systemic racialism, systemic racism. We have seen this played out in many parts of the world throughout history. Instead, we chose to organize ourselves as a meritocracy, where people were rewarded based on their own ability and hard work. Compared with many other societies, many more successful Singaporeans come from poor and middle-income, middle-class homes, and from different language schools. They were able to rise because Singapore had created a system where they had the opportunities to rise regardless of their background or connections. By giving everyone a fair shot at success, meritocracy inspired all of us to strive to be our best and to use our talents to give back to Singapore and to society. Meritocracy has thus far allowed Singapore to defy the odds, to maximize the only natural resource we have, our people and their talents, and to grow from a third world country to a thriving global city we are today. For a young country that did not and does not seem to be a better set of organizing principles for people to compete and excel. Now, for more than 50 years on, Singapore faces new challenges. We are a much more mature, 
affluent and educated society. But there are concerns about growing disparities, not just in income, but also wealth, social capital, connections and opportunities. We are also much more globally connected and much more aware of the opportunities and inequalities around the world. And though we have achieved many successes, we can easily fall prey to complacency and end up being victims of our own success. Thus, it is timely to ask ourselves, amidst our changing realities, can meritocracy continue to help Singapore defy the new odds and succeed? Meritocracy is not a perfect system. No system is. A few months ago, at the opening of Parliament, I shared four potential pitfalls of meritocracy we must be wary of, and let me briefly recap them. Of course, you can read the full speech online. First, success in a meritocracy cannot be based on a single static and narrow metric. As society matures, those who have succeeded will want to perpetuate the same yardsticks and measures of success, narrowing our talent pool, reducing our diversity and resilience as a society. But a single static and narrow matrix that does not keep up with the times can easily cause us to stagnate and become irrelevant. Second, our meritocracy cannot reward success only at predetermined fixed points. People develop at different paces and demonstrate different abilities at different stages of their life. We must recognize this and have a system of continuous meritocracy where no single test at any one point in time determines the rest of one's life. Third, meritocracies have a tendency to stratify over time. It is perhaps human nature to want to pass on our wealth and privileges to our children. But these natural tendencies risk creating an endowment effect, with meritocracy becoming harder and harder for those with less or those who are less privileged. And over time, if we are not careful, this may then degenerate, degenerate into aristocracy or plutocracy. Fourth, meritocracies can lead to the misplaced belief that one's success is solely the result of one's own talent and hard work. Yes, hard work and talent are factors for success. However, we do not succeed alone. We are indebted to the support of those around us, parents, mentors, teachers, and friends. So, can meritocracy continue to help Singapore defy the odds of history? Meritocracy has helped Singapore succeed in the last 50 years. But unless we consciously keep strengthening the system and avoiding the pitfalls, it may not continue to do so for the next 50 years. But just because meritocracy can be flawed, like any other system, that does not mean that we should give it up altogether. If I may borrow a turn of phrase from Winston Churchill, meritocracy may be the worst system, except for all those others that have been tried. So instead, we asked ourselves, how can our meritocracy help Singapore be even more relevant 
competitive and cohesive in the next 50 years. First, a meritocratic system keeps Singapore relevant and attractive so that the best will want to compete for and connect with Singapore. Compared to 50 years ago, Singapore's position in the world has improved considerably. Our standard of living has vastly improved. We enjoy good standing in the international community and have friends and partners around the world. But our fundamentals have not changed. We will always be a small country without a conventional hinterland. We will always need to be connected to the world to secure our lifelines and livelihoods. And our people will always be our most valuable resource. In fact, in the new normal, where talent is more mobile and remote work is increasingly the norm, the ability to attract and retain talent will be even more important for our success going forward. If we trip up and lose our attractiveness to talent and relevance to the region and the world, someone else will quickly overtake us and we will be relegated to the has-been. But if we get it right, we can overcome the constraints of our size and geography many times over by growing our pool of talent and networks even more to support our continued success. Meritocracy is what helps us to attract, deepen, and widen our talent networks by giving good people from Singapore and beyond the chance to realize their potential, rise up, and continue and contribute to our continued survival and success. And by attracting those who want to connect, collaborate, and compete within a rules-based system that is not beset by corruption, nepotism, or cronyism. We may take this for granted, but in many other systems, success in business and even political leadership is very often determined not by the quality of one's ideas. Instead, it could be determined by the depth of one's pocket or the networks of one's family. When we think of a place for the best and the brightest, for many years, the US has occupied a special place in the popular imagination. Not because Americans had the best test scores or the most naturally talented people, but because people believed that regardless of who they were or where they came from, they had a fair shot of the American dream. And this is perhaps America's greatest competitive advantage, that vast numbers of people around the world aspire to be Americans or to partner them and contribute to their continued vitality. Here in Singapore, we have also worked hard to build a principled and fair system founded on the meritocratic principle. People want to commit their future here and do business here because they know that what matters here is the quality of their output and that they will find a fair and open platform that allows the best ideas to thrive. So while we may only be a society of 4 million Singaporeans here as family, we can aspire for 40 million friends of Singapore and perhaps 400 million fans of Singapore. Because we aim to be a beacon of fairness and opportunity whose influence can multiply our population many times beyond our shores. Now, that brings me to my second point. Meritocracy is essential to keep us competitive, to remain relevant in a fragile economic global environment. While meritocracy will help us to attract the best, that is not the end goal. 
Instead, we want the best to also emerge from Singapore. The meritocratic principle is key to making this happen. If your ideas are fairly rewarded, purely based on their quality rather than your connections or wealth, then people and businesses will be driven to create new and better ideas and to put their intellectual property here. Ideas that are safer, more efficient and more innovative, that have a greater value proposition for others, that efficiently meet the new needs and demands. In our business landscape, we do this by designing a fair regulatory environment and leaving the market to reward ideas that have value. But we need to do this for individuals too. Firstly, by ensuring that our meritocracy is fair and rewards people based on their talent and ability and not on their wealth or family background. By giving those with less every possible support so that those who start with less in life can also make the most of their abilities and talents. And by investing in our people for a longer time, not just in their first 15 years of their life in school, but also in the next 50 years of their life beyond school. And secondly, as the world becomes more complex, by moving to recognize excellence across a more diverse range of abilities and talents that are important for our society and in turn make us a much more resilient society with a diversity of strengths. This allows us to draw from a wider pool of talent rather than the privileged few and to find the best from a diverse range of strengths. And these strengths will form the basis of our resilience. If we can get these meritocratic principles right, we will create a virtuous cycle of finding and attracting the best people and ideas from both a local and global pool and allowing the best in diverse areas to compete with each other so that they can become even better. So despite the fact that others might be bigger than us or have more resources than us, even as we face new changes and new shocks, we will not be displaced because we have built an adaptable, resilient economy with the capacity to innovate by giving people and opportunities, by giving businesses the opportunities the ability to realize their potential and compete fairly based on their capabilities and the quality of their ideas. Finally, we need meritocracy to keep Singapore cohesive, to unite us and not to divide us. In many countries, a narrow definition of merit based on credentials and college qualifications have bifurcated society into the elites and the non-elites, the haves and the have-nots. These fractures have grown to form deep political and social divides. But this is not the inevitable outcome of meritocracy. A more encompassing definition of merit can instead unify us, and it allows us to respect and reward different abilities and to build dignity for each other's strengths. So that diversity is a source of unity for us rather than a source of discord. To broaden our definition of merit, we have been moving away from defining success by any single static or narrow matrix, including the PSLE results, grade point averages, or whether one holds a degree or diploma. We must also fairly reward and remunerate different kinds of work, including technical or service and community care roles, or what we call the hard work and the handwork, to a level that commensurate with the more recognized cognitive Hate work. 
we are working to uplift the wages of the lower wage workers and investing more in the quality of our vocational instruction, not just in the schools, but also for lifelong training. But this may all translate to higher costs for some services provided by our fellow Singaporeans, which our society must be willing to accept and support. But beyond wages, it is also about the respect and the dignity we afford to our people. Many of us here may remember Jack News' film, I Not Stupid, or Xiao Hai Pupen. I hear that there will be a third film soon. For those who have not seen it, it is about the struggles of three students with weaker academic abilities. Because they did not do well academically, they were looked down upon by their schoolmates, not respected by society, and seen as failures in life. The first film was released more than 20 years ago, but these anxieties remain very real for many today. If our society continues to respect only those with the highest test scores and perhaps the most impressive academic credentials, there will be many more I Not Stupid films reflecting these concerns. Because the schools you went to, to how much you earn, will continue to be a deep fissure that divides society. Instead, my hope for Singapore is that we can be at peace with each other's diverse abilities by respecting one another for our diverse contributions to society and having the confidence in our own respective abilities, knowing that we are each contributing to our best. And a final word on success. No matter how perfect a meritocratic system, there will still be those who gain and those who gain less. But although meritocracy promises rewards for our talent, ability and hard work, we must not fall into the trap of believing that we are the sole masters of our own successes and look down upon those who have not done as well in life. In fact, we are indebted to the support of those around us, parents, mentors and friends, who have shared their life advice and connections with us and supported us emotionally and even financially. But not everyone may have been so equally blessed. So even in a meritocratic society, let us take care of one another. Let us recognize that our individual success is not just due to our own abilities and hard work, but also due to the opportunities given to us by the system and the support and love of those around us. And therefore, for all of us to give back so that others will be uplifted too as they seek different and better lives. If we can all do this, then Singapore's brand of meritocracy will unite us instead of dividing us by encouraging us to strive together for success in our own diverse ways and inspiring us to look not just ahead at our own paths to success, but to look around to see how we can help those striving alongside us. It is not just about us pulling ahead of the crowd, but it is about us bringing everyone along together. So allow me to conclude. Meritocracy has been and will continue to be a core pillar of Singapore's survival and success. But while meritocracy has worked well for us for the last 50 years, meritocracy without continuous evolution will not be sufficient for the next 50 years. It must be tempered by well-designed systems 
to recognize and reward merit fairly, broadly, while leaning against the natural tendencies for humans to stratify because we all want to pass on our wealth and privileges to the next generation. And it must be tempered with nimbleness and adaptability such that our diverse dimensions of merit evolve to meet the needs of the times instead of remaining static and narrow. And most importantly, meritocracy must be combined with the right values, gratitude for what we have received and compassion towards those who have not had these advantages in life and a collective sense of responsibility for us to uplift everyone together. This will be key to Singapore's success if we continue to seek to defy the odds. And with that, I look forward to our discussions and how we can continue to evolve and improve our meritocratic system to ensure that Singapore's remain attractive, competitive and cohesive for us to defy the odds of history for many more years to come. Thank you. So, Minister Chan Chun Singh, Director IPS Janjas Devan, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, a very good morning to all. I think it is fitting that meritocracy is the first topic to be addressed at uh, today's conference. And this is because I think meritocracy is vital to our social compact, as it is about how citizens' efforts and contributions to society are recognized and rewarded. Meritocracy also speaks um, to our sense of fairness and how we would like to be as a society. Furthermore, meritocracy is not a static concept, but one that needs to be periodically revisited and updated as Singapore develops as a nation and as our circumstances change. So this morning, we have been most privileged to have Minister Chan share his views and valuable insights on this important topic of meritocracy and how our meritocracy needs to be updated to continue to serve Singapore well. Uh, his speech has given us, all of us, much food for thought, and among the various insights that he has shared, two things uh, stood out for me. The first is that uh, meritocracy is so vital in attracting retaining and developing our talent in Singapore. And not talent as narrowly defined, but encompassing a range of skills and competencies that we need as an economy and as a society going forward. And the second point is that uh, meritocracy is, if done right, is not just, uh, is a force for cohesion, has the potential to be a force for cohesion rather than division in society. To, so to respond to Minister Chan's speech, we are also privileged to have this morning uh, two distinguished academics with us who have given much thought to the issue of meritocracy and its impact on society. Uh, each of them will speak for about 10 minutes. The first is Associate Professor Daniel Goh, a sociologist who is Associate Provost, Undergraduate Education and Vice Dean of Special Programs at NUS College. The second is Associate Professor Jason Tan, who looks after policy, curriculum, and leadership at the National Institute of Education. Without further ado, may I invite uh, Professor Daniel to give his thoughts. Thank you, Terence. Thank you, Minister. It was uh, actually very difficult to respond to your speech because it was excellent. Um, I, I think your speech is one of the most progressive and forward-looking one in recent years for a statesman. Uh, it offers historical depth as well as the thoughtful handle on the current issues and criticisms without being you know, over-defensive, which we see a lot in the, in the public media these days. I would like to reinforce certain points um, and raise a few critical questions 
for further thinking and discussion. Let me start with a classic definition of meritocracy, which, you, which you've already elaborated. Uh, one of talent that is set against aristocracy, which is about birthright. But as you have pointed out, there are other more contemporary systems we need to take into account. Plutocracy, oligarchy, and so on and so forth. Well, the pandemic has also made us aware of the importance of essential services performed by lower-wage and frontline workers to society. So I think we need to redefine meritocracy well beyond the limited, uh, uh, narrow confines of success, beyond talent versus birthright, to one of skills and performance that's relevant to society at any given, time, any given point of time, uh, versus endowment, all right, which is a very different concept from just birthright. We also need to recognize meritocracy as a complex system, one that has an opportunity structure for recognition of skills and performance. Right? It needs to be scrutinized to keep it from, you know, from being obsolete. It has to be well and, and, and functioning. And one of the key issues I think that plagues us um, today is the tension between equity and equality. While we seek to keep the opportunities for recognition equal and free from biases, blind to everything else except skills and performance, People do not start from equitable basis to be able to realize their skills for, for performance. So the paradox, I think, in meritocracy is that perfect equality can lead to growing inequality if we do not ensure equitable baselines for everyone to unlock the talent and skills for performance. Now, Minister has already referenced um, many progressive attempts by the government to tackle growing inequality and improve equitable baselines in our education system reforms. I would like to highlight three sticky issues. The first is private tuition, which allows those who are well endowed with family resources to move ahead and unlock their talent for better performance better. And while aptitude-based admissions, which is something that's favoured by MOE, or a small thorough growing variant holistic uh, assessments can reduce the effect of tuition, they can also end up favouring those who are better endowed. Thus, we find the flourishing of uh, enrichment programs in the private tuition industry to cater to skills such as coding, speaking, presentation, and offering experiential learning to boost a child's holistic profile. The second is alumni associations, right, and their admissions are based on alumni uh, relations, which locks priority admissions and fosters a new middle-class aristocracy, able to use their endowments to take advantage of the best learning resources in the top schools. This is limited to primary schools here, but it escalates into secondary schools and universities. Well, primary schools are actually crucial for establishing the equitable baselines for meritocracy. Over time, this can also breed mediocrity, as the best learning resources are utilized by those who are not as talented and skilled because they got admitted due to endowments. The third is proximity admissions, which lead to and are reinforced by the gentrification of neighborhoods in Singapore. It leads to high-priced HDB or private estates that undermine the equitable ethos of our urban planning and housing policy, and again, leads to favouring those with endowments. Now, let me move on very quickly to um, what is becoming quite pertinent today, which is the DEI discourse, diversity, equity, inclusivity. It has become prevalent and normative, and it is important, I think, we need to consider it. I've already discussed equity, I think, in the, in the three sticky issues that I've, I've mentioned. Now, what about meritocracy and its relationship to diversity and inclusion? Well, there are echoes of this uh, in Minister's speech, and Minister has quite rightly pointed out that the mistaken belief that one's success is solely due to one's skills and performance, that we should recognize the collective contribution of our colleagues and our fellow citizens. Now, but what do we do with calls to improve racial and gender diversity 
in our schools, in some vocations, and in our workplaces. Lack of diversity does not necessarily mean the persistence of privilege or the presence of prejudice, but over time, it undermines our confidence in meritocracy, and not to mention our foundational political beliefs in multiracialism, multi multiculturalism, and gender equality. So we cannot afford to compel diversity by quotas because this will make mockery of the equality principle or meritocracy, but yet we need to foster equitable baselines. So how do we do this? In celebration of SM Taman's retirement from politics and government to stand for the presidency, I think we can think deeper about the concept that he brought to bear effectively, I think, to fight um, rising socioeconomic inequality, and that is inclusive growth. Let me twist the word growth a little bit here. Uh, growth of individuals through education, right? personal growth. Uh, to unlock talent and skills for performance, I think that is at the foundation of meritocracy. We need to be mindful of inclusion in all our points of admissions and reset it with a spirit of inclusive growth. So to conclude, I would like to add to what my dean of NUS College, Prof. Simon Chesterman, wrote recently an op-ed in Straits Times on what he calls Meritocracy 2.0. We need to encourage broad-based admissions. Don't let the lack of confidence or fatalism of racial, gender, and class minorities hamper um, the children from applying. Do special outreach, remove the obstacles, including psychological ones. Have the political will and courage to remove alumni and proximity admissions and apply the all else being more or less equal admit for inclusion. So add to our holistic assessment modes the skill of learning from failure and not just focus on success. And I'll just end um, with this note that uh, I hope Minister can consider some of these points and I would like to hear his response to them. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. I'll respond to them in a while. <coughs> Thank you, Daniel, and uh, Prof. Jason, please. Good morning, everybody, and thank you, Minister, for your speech on revisiting meritocracy. Uh, since we're revisiting meritocracy, I thought I'd begin by taking us back to the origin of the word meritocracy itself, which I'm, I'm sure many of you know originated um, in this 1958 book by Michael Young entitled The Rise of the Meritocracy. And his book, was a dystopian satire of a future Britain in which status is determined by a combination of IQ plus effort. In other words, merit equals IQ plus effort. And um, Michael Young acknowledged that a meritocratic system appeared fairer than an aristocratic society in which um, status was simply passed on by parents to their own children. If we fast forward to um, the year 2001, Michael Young um, wrote a column for the Guardian newspaper, and he said that many of the predictions in his book had come about, had come to pass in Britain. For one thing, the education system in Britain served this key role of sieving and certifying people according to a narrow set of criteria. Um, secondly, those who had been judged to have a particular kind of merit had hardened into a new social class, and Young lamented what he viewed as growing social ossification in Britain. Um, thirdly, he also lamented 
the hubris of those who had succeeded under this meritocracy and who believed that success was entirely due to their own merits and who correspondingly looked down on those who had not succeeded. Um, so why am I saying this? It's to point out one of the perhaps central paradoxes of merit meritocracy, which is that while it is a system that is supposed to undermine entrenched privilege, if not handled carefully, it can result in the appearance of privilege or in the entrenchment of privilege. Um, and this leads me to my second point, which is the need to think about the intergenerational consequences of our policies. Um, in other words, we need to think about the ways in which sometimes those who have succeeded as a result of current or past policies are therefore better placed to secure an advantage for their own children. In your speech just now, you referred to what you termed as natural tendencies or human nature when talking about parents wanting to pass on wealth and privileges to their children. Um, let's take up that point. Um, if we look at how parental involvement in educational success in Singapore has evolved over time, um, it's probably true to say that Many parents have this perception that the education system is highly competitive, that it serves um, a key sorting role in determining who has more or less merit. And it's, I think it's also clear that students leave the school system with unequal outcomes. So perhaps it's only natural, therefore, for many parents to think that they need to try their very best in order to help their children stay ahead and acquire more merit, whatever merit may mean. We're seeing, of course, a great deal of parental strategizing. Um, and I've talked about this earlier on elsewhere when I uh, quoted Philip Brown's term parentocracy. Um, probably, if we look at why there's so much parental strategizing now. Um, maybe, maybe it's more and more important now in order to navigate an increasingly diversified education landscape. So once, once you have more and more options, more and more pathways, you, you need to spend that much more time thinking about various options, um, weighing the options up, deciding what you need to do in order to access various options. And of course, um, we are also seeing the rise of parental social networks um, that, that sometimes manage to come up with the answers to exam questions within a, less than an hour after the exams have ended. Let's go Kiasu Paradox. <laughs> <laughs> um, my third point, it's impossible for any government to outlaw this kind of parental strategizing and networking. So I guess what your government is trying to do instead is to, or one of the things you're trying to do is to rely on moral suasion to get people um, to be, for instance, less hyper-competitive. I'm not sure what that means, less hyper-competitive. That means just be competitive. <laughs> <laughs> 
to get people to reevaluate the meaning of our success, to get people to become more compassionate and more willing to help others. And here we are talking about, I guess, this uneasy balance between, on the one hand, what you've termed as natural tendencies, um, the, the natural tendencies to look out for one's own interests and for the best interests of one owns one's own children. And on the other hand, um, thinking about the greater public good. It's easy enough, I think, for us to pay lip service to social ideals, um, but I think when it comes down to the crux of the matter, what's important is what happens in the case of our own children's educational success. Will we still hold on to those social ideals that we publicly espouse, or will we become hyper-competitive? Because anyway, it's high stakes. And in this regard, of course, um, individual actions by hundreds of thousands of parents act in a cumulative sort of manner to affect the wider public good. So, of course, you've got individual parents thinking that they need to act in a certain way in order to secure their own interests or their children's interests, and then it all adds up uh, in, a, in a strange sort of way that, that can affect the greater public good. Um, and here we have to remember, I think, that why, why are we talking about this balance between individual interests and the greater public good? Because, at its very heart, meritocracy is in many ways um, a rather individualistic ethos. It, it, it talks about individual success, individual hard work, individual effort. My fourth point, in, in your, earlier, your speech just now, you acknowledged that the playing field is not level and that outcomes are unequal, and I think we, we all know that. Um, so one of the big problems is how to enable greater equity and ensure that everyone has a fairer shot at success. Of course, if this can be possible, um, it will go a long way towards increasing the wider social and political legitimacy of the meritocratic system. So I guess um, we have to remember that it's not just a matter of policymakers um, devising policies that they deem fair, but more importantly, um, it's about whether the wider public out there also deems those policies fair. And here, there's this ever-present danger that um, people may think about fairness in an individualistic manner. In other words, what's fair is what works best in my own favor or in my children's interests. I mean, why should I worry about what happens to other people's children or to other people? If it doesn't work well for me, then it's unfair. Um, then I think my fifth point, which is my final point, is like you said earlier on, I agree too that meritocracy is not just about all these policies and structures, but also about values, um, both individual values as well as collective values. The, we have to ask ourselves these tough moral questions about what kind of society we aspire to be, um, what's important and what can be compromised on and what can't. 
when we are rethinking meritocracy, I think it's important also to remember that the issues involved are highly emotive issues for many of us. And this is obviously because when we're talking about meritocracy, we are talking very much about human hopes and dreams for themselves, for their children. And nobody likes it, I think, when they feel that their own future or that of their children is under threat or, or being jeopardized or compromised. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you to our two respondents for those uh, very thoughtful views and insights. I know many people in the audience have many burning questions they would like to pose to the panel, and I also receive some questions uh, through the uh, online submission. But to just open off, I'll open the panel discussion. I'd like to put just one question to the panel members. So as we think about broadening the definition of merit, there's, also, there's still the question of who should define merit and how merit should be assessed and rewarded. So in your view, what kinds of processes, whether driven by the market, by public policy, or by social or societal conventions, what processes are needed to redefine, assess, and reward merit in Singapore? If I may invite the minister and the other two respondents, please. Can you say this? Wait. No, go ahead. <laughs> who should define merit? <laughs> Uh, to me, that's quite straightforward. For us to survive as a country, to defy the odds of history, we need to be relevant to the world. So who to define merits? What kind of skill sets, what kind of attributes our people must have individually and collectively is determined not by us, but by the larger global context. So if you look at the world that we have been through in the last perhaps uh, 50 years, the kind of skill sets that will allow us to remain relevant and earn a living in this world has changed. And we must be prepared to change. But as what uh, both Jason and uh, Daniel have mentioned, and also in my speech as well, there is always this danger amongst us that the greater our success, the longer our success, the more we believe that whatever has worked in the past will continue to work going into the future. So I give some tangible examples. In the area of security and geopolitics, the kind of skill sets, the kind of sensitivities that we need in our people to understand the world, to make ourselves relevant and help bridge divides have become much more important than ever before. It's a different skill sets, a different understanding of the world, a different understanding of different parts of the world. In terms of economics, where we can make ourselves relevant, not just by hardcore skills, but also on some of the soft skills of how to bring people together, not just by answering yesterday's questions with yesterday's uh, solutions, but by framing new challenges ahead of time and finding those solutions ahead of time in collaboration with others. Those are new skill sets. And if these are the essential skill sets for us to survive, then the concept of merit as what is most important skill sets, competencies for our people and our country must continue to evolve. So to me, we are a price taker in a harsh world. We need to evolve our skill sets and competencies and our definitions of merit based on what will best help us to defy the odds of history and survive the new challenges coming, going forward. So if, if I may respond, I think 
I'll respond from a position of an educator. Um, I think the, the, the bottom line is that, or, 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 the, or the bug stops here, right? So I'm the one in terms of defining merit of the, the grades, the, the assessments of my students, it stops with me, right? But it, it doesn't just come out from my own personal um, perspective. It has to come out from a whole series of interactions and a, a continuous kind of learning process in which I do not stop learning how to be a good educator and to practice that meritocracy. Um, I want to emphasize that meritocracy is not just a system, but one that is being practiced at micro levels everywhere throughout society every day by, the, by different people, you know, supervisors, by bosses, by, by fellow colleagues, um, by educators, by teachers, um, by, by allied educators, right? by the students themselves because they give feedback to the educators on what is relevant and what is not. For me, there were many, many points of interaction. I have to listen to, the, I have to, listen to speeches by government, government ministers right? telling me, like, okay, with, a, with, a, with their broad kind of helicopter vision you know, of, of what is relevant today in, in today's world, what are the skills that are relevant. I've got to factor that in, into my assessment modes. I have to listen to my students who give me feedback after every semester during the midterm uh, process to understand what they feel are their needs because they are the ones who are more in touch and more in line sometimes with market forces than I am. I have to listen to um, my superiors in, in, in education. I have to listen to uh, fellow teachers, uh, uh, pedagogists who, who tell me these are the latest kind of modes and methods of, of, of assessment and so on and so forth. So I think it is precisely that, right? It is a practice. Meritocracy is also a practice. We have to also try to encourage that perfection of that practice in our assessment modes, in evaluating skills and performances so that the meritocracy can work uh, as, as, a, as a matter of practice. Can I just add to what uh, Daniel mentioned? I mean, just to give an example in the education system. In the past, we might deem a student to be a very good student because they know a lot of things, they have access to a lot of information, and they are able to give us very good answers to what I call yesterday's problems with yesterday's solution. But going forward, what are the skill sets that we are looking for in our students? I crunch it down to three words. The ability to distill, discern, and to discover. Why? These are the new competencies rather than the previous set of competencies. Because today, knowledge is commoditized. Having more knowledge than someone else is not the be-all and end-all. In fact, our students and our people in general have probably uh, too much information. The question is, how do you train someone and help someone to distill quickly? And then, how do you help them to discern? Discernment is a skill, but it is also a skill that must be coupled with the right values system. So in our education process, how to distill and discern. But more importantly, we need them to create new knowledge, to find new solutions, perhaps in the intersection of different disciplines. So the, dis the process of discovery. Now, these are quite different skill sets from the previous, perhaps, skill sets that led to scholastic success. And those are the new skill sets that we need to equip our people. How do we equip our people to learn to collaborate with people in a more fractious, a more fragmenting world? It's not just about knowing the stuff ourselves. It's about bringing people from different backgrounds across different political persuasions, perhaps 
different geopolitical blocks perhaps to come together, sit down and create new solutions. So that kind of skill sets we need to equip our people going forward. So as Daniel said, it, it cannot be a static form of practice even in the education system. It must keep evolving with the needs of the times. And if we fail to do that, we will do a disservice to the people whom we are educating to prepare them for tomorrow's world rather than yesterday's world. Mm. I, I, I would say that it's probably a web of relationships across the, the market and then public policy and societal conventions. I, I see it as a dynamic sort of flow. Uh, in other words, to give a simple example, very often the government policymakers respond to feedback from industry leaders. Yes, um, we are short of certain kinds of skills. We, we, we don't have enough students coming out of the schools who have certain sets, sets of skills. So then that influences public policy direction. And then of course, um, public policy is also sensitive to what public sentiment is to some extent. So, so and, and, and of course, the market signals also affect the societal conventions. So, for instance, in, in your speech, you talked about um, raising the skills profile and the wages of, of um, a lot of vocational jobs, yes, and technical jobs. So, so that's one way in which public policy actually can serve to affect societal perceptions of such jobs. Uh, am I making myself clear? So, so, so I, I see it as, as, a, as a sort of dynamic interplay across those three um, areas. If I may add to what uh, Jason is mentioning about the market signals, uh, that is very important to us because uh, within the education system, we can do what we can to upskill our people, reskill our people, and so forth. But ultimately, Singaporeans are very practical. They need a market signal. And that market signal comes in two ways. Of one, how we reward people with the skills rather than just the credentials. Two, very importantly, there's another form of market signal that is not so tangible. And that is how we relate to and respect other people from a different background and profession. So like, for example, uh, through the COVID uh, uh, years, we know how essential many of these workers who use their hands, who use their heart to take care of uh, the needy, the vulnerable, is so important to our social fabric. And hopefully with this, I think there's a newfound awareness or a greater impetus for us to make sure that we recognize them and respect them that commensurate with the kind of work that they do. So it is both the, if you like, the monetary uh, remuneration, the wages, the salary as a market signal, but there's also the other part, which is the kind of respect that we give to people from different professions. And collectively, then we can have the diversity of strengths to take Singapore forward. Thank you all for the very uh, comprehensive and thoughtful response. I'd now like to invite uh, members of the audience uh, to approach the standing microphones for your questions, please. I think one over there. Um, hi, my name is Hannah. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. I can see myself. <laughs> okay, so I'm posing my 
my question as an educator, researcher, but also a parent advocate for children with special education needs in mainstream schools. So um, it's not a stretch uh, if I can say on behalf of parents with children with special needs, especially those um, uh, children with what you call the invisible disabilities, right? With neurodivergent children like dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, and what have you. Um, the playing field for them is never level, so therefore meritocracy does not exist where they're out of that club, right? That door is locked. So what is the key? In revisiting meritocracy, what key could we provide? Like, for example, I, I was heartened to hear about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and how that go hand in hand with meritocracy, right? So um, what would that look like um, in a meritocratic uh, society where we prioritize equity that could look like providing them with the right tools, um, accommodations that they need to be on equal footing, the key to get through the club, right? And also embracing diversity and recognize the different learning um, difficulties. Um, for example, uh, if they can't learn the way we teach, then we have to teach the way they learn, right? So my question, in, my question is, in revisiting meritocracy, how could we create an education system that provides equality of opportunity for all, um, one that embraces diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? What would that look like? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I presume that question must be for me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll just make a few points in response to uh, the question. First, I think we need to first understand how do we define success for our own education system? What is success? Is success because we have topped the PISA score, we have topped the PERLS, which is the International Reading and Literacy uh, Test. What is success? Is success everybody going to university? Is success everybody getting at least a diploma? What is success? I have thought long and hard about this issue even before I became the Minister for Education. I don't know what the audience will think, and today I don't have a word cloud to ask you what your views are and uh, pigeonhole, but to me, success is every Singaporean able to do justice to their blessings. Every Singaporean able to do justice to their blessings. Which means that we must recognize that across a cohort of 30, 40,000 students every year, they are different, they have diverse strengths and abilities. The question is, how can we, as a system, enable everyone as much as possible to do justice to their blessings? From those with special needs to those with high abilities, how can we build a system that truly does this? 
And to be fair, we may never be able to achieve this high goal where we can achieve, allow everyone to do justice to their blessings totally, but we must strive. How do we do that? So I'll touch on a few points which I think also follow up on what Daniel mentioned just now. If we define that as success for our education, every Singaporean child able to do justice to their blessings throughout life, then I think a few things will follow quite naturally. First, in response to that, we don't run a system whereby we give every child the same and equally, because as Daniel has suggested, imagine if we have five fingers, they are all of different length. If we give everyone the same equal things, it will end up the same equal outcome, which is not perhaps as equal as we would like it to be. In fact, our system tries to give those with less much more, to give them a leg up. That at least gives us a chance to you know, move the outcomes towards a more, uh, more equal outcomes. So I want, to, I want to debunk this myth that we are trying to give everyone the same or equally. In fact, that's not the philosophy of our system. If that has been the philosophy of system, today we will not have special schools from North Light to Path Light to Spectra and Crest. And neither will we have schools that caters to perhaps uh, bicultural studies and learning and for other schools who takes in higher ability students. My philosophy is this. In an education system, we need to do three things uplift those at the bottom, enable those in the middle, and stretch those at the top. These are three different challenges and three different outcomes. The Chinese say, Ying cai si jiao, each according to the children's need. So the first thing is that if we accept this, that our measure of success is how we do justice to allow everyone to do justice to their blessings, then we must accept a variety, a variegated landscape, a variegated education landscape. Then the second point in response to the question and also to Daniel's point is this. What, is, what are the reasons for examinations? Is our education system about sorting? If any education system is only about sorting, then we have failed. And, and even if we have to sort, is it to reward people based on how we have sorted or is it for different reasons? My answer is simply this. If we have to sort, it is because we want our children to be right-sighted at the right education setting in the next lap of their development. It is not about sorting to reward them. It is about trying to sort them according to their different learning needs so that we can best cater to them. So I give an example. Supposing we are parents and we like to hothouse our children to try to get into that perceived elite and popular school that is beyond their abilities. Are we doing justice to our children? Are we allowing them to do justice to their blessings? 
I have this hypothetical uh, thought experiment that I have always asked many parents in my conversations with the parent support group. I say, supposing in a PSLE system, your child is generally an AL10 scorer. Supposing. And suddenly, your child came home on PSLE results day with an AL4. <laughs> suddenly. <laughs> your child couldn't explain to you what happened. <laughs> you didn't know what happened. Now, the interesting question is this. What school will you choose for your child? Will you choose the AL4 that he now miraculously qualify? Or will you choose where you know that he's generally around the AL10 school that he would perhaps be a bit more comfortable with? Or will you choose a school perhaps is an AL11 or 12 that has the form of CCAs and leadership opportunities and development opportunities that they have? I don't know how many of you, okay, let, maybe we should poll the audience. Three choices, right? <laughs> how many of you will choose AL4 school for your child? Nobody, you are very modest, really. <laughs> I thought that was a hope for everyone. <laughs> how many of you will choose the AL10? Some. How many of you will choose the AL11 or 12? The rest of you, just leave it to your child, right? Good for you all. <laughs> <laughs> leave it to your child to choose is the correct answer. <laughs> but jokes aside, we need to know our children. We need to know our children. If they are the very... They can, they can live with the kind of tough competition, by all means, send them to a high-pressure environment and they will thrive. But if our child is not of that temperament, then perhaps another environment that's more nurturing at their pace will be more important. So I go back to my point. This education system is not just about sorting and rewarding people according to their merits. If we have to know the abilities of the students, is to enable them to be right-sighted at the correct education system, the next lab. And I will add a second point, and I'll be frank. I have spoken to all my teachers and principals. I don't measure their performance based on the outcome of their students. Because as you say, and as I have seen across the world, there are many education systems that sieve out good people and taking good students, and then they produce good results, and they pat themselves on the back. And I wonder, where is the value at? To me, actually, I know where's the value at. Because if having gone through PSLE, I know the distribution of the students with different abilities across the different schools. I'm not looking at their outcome per se. I'm looking at their value add per se. You're, maybe I should use a football analogy here, a dangerous thing to do at IPS, right? But supposing you look at some of the English Premier League or the Bundesliga or whatsoever, some clubs do very well. They earn a lot of money, they buy good players, they do better, they have TV rights, and they continue on a positive cycle. Question is, what is the value add? Some universities across the world select very good students, and they produce very good results. But again, what is the value add? So when I have conversations with the leadership of my IHLs, the Institute of Higher Learning, the Polytechnics, 
the Unistys, the JCs, and so on and so forth, I always ask them this. What is your value add? If you take in good students and you produce good results, that is to be expected. But if you take in good students and you educate them, you inspire them, you imbue in them the correct values that go beyond themselves, then that is value add. Last but not least, I'd just like to touch on special needs. I can understand the special needs. I have a special needs child myself. Okay? For the special needs children, to teach special needs is a different order of magnitude in terms of challenge. For the mainstream students, perhaps many of them, you can see them improving. You see and you feel a sense of progress. For special needs children, sometimes some of them are able to pro make progress with the right teaching methods and help. Sometimes some of them will just be where they are despite our best effort. And sometimes, despite our best effort, if they do not regress, we will be quite gratified because the conditions are very different. So what is success for special needs children? It doesn't matter, the same thing applies. That is that we try to allow them to do justice to their blessings. For us to help the special needs kids to realize their potential and do justice to their blessings is one order of magnitude more difficult than perhaps even the mainstream schools. This is why currently, as we speak, MOE and MMSF, we are intensifying our efforts to see how we can structure our education system for the special needs children of different kinds so that we can allow them to do justice for to their potential if they are able to do so, if not at least to take care of themselves, be independent, so that their caregivers can also have the peace of mind as they grow old. So the yardsticks are quite different. But what is not different and what is always similar is our goal in education, which is to allow everyone to do justice to their blessings. And if I may say one final thing about this thing, it's not easy for us to mass customize. It's never easy to mass customize according to everyone's needs. But technology, I believe, can help us to do this. If we use the right technologies to complement what our teachers do very well, then I think we have a much better chance. So, for example, I use language oracy training. With adaptive technology, higher needs students are able to repeat the lessons at their own pace. When we gamified it, they are, they are encouraged to keep improving. On the other hand, the higher ability students can stretch themselves by doing more challenging problem sums or more reading more challenging passages. Technology will be able to multiply our capabilities to mass customize the education system rather than to just provide mass access. That is our challenge going forward in the next lab which was why two weeks ago when I spoke to the teachers in our teachers' conference, this is one of the key push for MOE. Leverage on technology to allow us to mass customize and unlock the potential of different children. The same language model that is used in Northlight to help the high-need students to gain fluency in basic interaction can also be used to allow the high-ability students to stretch their abilities in reading more difficult and challenging passages. 
how we adopt and adapt to this new world is something that we should seize as an opportunity and not just see as a challenge. Thank you. There's a question over there. Yes, please. Thank you, uh, Prof. Hong. Uh, my name is Arun Makarinan. I work for IPS. Uh, before I ask my question, I hope my director would forgive me if I set a record straight. A few days ago, he called me uh, on the phone and I said, Arun, what is the phrase you often use uh, to describe the relationship between the government and IPS? I immediately said, well, we are close to the government, but we are not part of the government. I had no idea that he was going to cite me <laughs> as the author of this. Had I known, I would have immediately said I was just plagiarizing Professor Tommy Cole. <laughs> he was the one who succinctly summarized this relationship when he was uh, the director of IPS and my boss. In fact, in the last 32 years, if I ever said anything sensible, or sexy is usually plagiarization of Professor Tommy Cole, <laughs> my former boss and my eternal guru. So I thought I should uh, let everybody know who actually said that. Now my question, <clears throat> we have been talking a great deal of the old meritocracy and the new meritocracy. I think for the majority of the public, the old meritocracy has been instilled by numerous demonstrations of what meritocracy meant, by the appointments we make, by the awards we give, the presidential scholarship, um, even cultural medallion. We're always saying, this is the best, they are the most talented and so on. So over 50, 60 years, we know what meritocracy was meant by the government. But in the case of the new, the evolved or evolving meritocracy, what are the actual demonstrations of that? I'm glad you mentioned what you're doing in the Ministry of Education, but that's only a very small part of this process. And I'm also glad you mentioned what we did with the COVID people. I think that's a very good example of how we define merit this way. But I wonder whether you can come up with another three examples of how you are demonstrating the new meritocracy that you are propagating uh, so much. Thank you. Okay, I presume that's for me as well. <laughs> okay, thank you, Arun. So let me start with what we are doing and what we need the society to come along and join us in doing. Starting from school. Probably many of you are familiar with uh, the EduSafe Awards that we give out to our students uh, every year. Uh, in the past, when we first started, very much the awards were reward for academic excellence. Mm. Over time, we have also progressed that to look at service, the so CCAs, the co-curricular activities. In fact, going forward, we will push this concept even more. That while academic excellence remains one of the pillars of what we recognize, we also want to recognize students who have done well in other areas. One, 
their contributions to the school and society. Why contributions? One of the things that I always talk about in terms of broadening the success of definitions, the easy part that people always think about is that when we broaden the success of definitions, we talk about different dimensions of merit, be it academics or be it uh, sports and science and so on and so forth. Now, that itself is valid. But I would like and I would like, to, I would like to see Singapore evolving to a society whereby we define success not just by our own achievements, but instead by our contributions. And this is a very important concept that I like to pitch. Because I want every Singaporean to understand that regardless of one station in life, whether we are rich or poor, whether we are academically inclined or otherwise, we all can make a contribution. We all can make a contribution. And the contributions must commensurate with your abilities and your abilities must, your contributions must commensurate with your abilities. To those with more, much more to be expected. Okay, I'll give this example. In my own constituencies, in a one-room flat, I have this Madam Ida. She takes Comcare vouchers from us. She gets uh, help from the community to help her go through her difficult difficulties in life. But she always demonstrates one street. Whenever the volunteers go to her house and give her things to help her, she will, in her small little way, make a little gesture. Sometimes it's to bake a cake, sometimes it's to make some kuih kuih and thank the volunteers. Now, to me, that's important because it tells us that for us to be a cohesive society, it is not just about only some people will contribute. It is also not just about some people will celebrate their achievements, but we celebrate the contributions of everyone. And I want this to start from young, which is why we are going to broaden the EduSafe, not just to recognize academic achievements, not just to recognize the, the co-curricular achievements and so forth, but we also want to recognize leadership. We also want to recognize the ability to contribute according to your needs. This is a very important message that we need to send. So that's one part about how we need to adjust the conception of what we mean by success and meritocracy. Because ultimately, success in Singapore must be a team sport. It is not just about each one individually running our own races and hope that everybody will come along. As what Jason mentioned just now. If meritocracy is an increasingly individualistic sport, then it won't work for Singapore. Instead, meritocracy in Singapore must be a team sport. For those who have succeeded and achieved more, much more must be expected from you to contribute back to society. It's like what we do in a social experiment. We do a blind test. You don't know which stations in life you may be born into. But you can be confident that so long as you are born in Singapore, regardless of your background, you will have the chance to succeed. And our commitment is to do more for those with less. But that also means that for those with more, they must understand their responsibility to give back and to take everyone else along in the same journey. Only so can we maintain our cohesion. Now, but that's just the first part about broadening the, success, broadening the definition of success beyond achievements to contribution. The second thing that we need to do is, as what you've mentioned, we need to then recognize that many people in this society of ours are contributing in their own ways, which may not just be academically inclined. For example, the nurses, the essential workers, 
even the waste disposal, uh, sorry, the waste disposal workers, they all make a contribution to us. And it is incumbent upon us to respect them and to remunerate them fairly. Does it cause us to have to change the way we relate to one another? Yes, it does. And I hope we do. Because that will bring for a much more cohesive society where we respect a diversity of strength. In fact, interestingly, with all this large language model and generative chat GPT, I think we may be at the cups of rebalancing of how we recognize and reward work. It's just like when we first invented the machine, the hard labor, the reward for hard labor went down because the machine was able to replicate many of these things. Then the interesting question for us to ask ourselves is that with now this large language model or generative uh, AI, how will it rebalance the reward that the society gives to people? I would say the following. Uh, I don't think that ChatGPT will replace all kinds of work that we do. Uh, it won't be that we are out of job. But I think there will be a premium for certain kind of work that we need to uh, be aware of and perhaps to add to what Daniel mentioned just now, the new competencies that we need. First, the high-tech must couple with the high-touch, the high-touch sector, the care sector. Uh, nursing, elder care cannot be easily replaced by ChatGPT. Yes, I know some robots can do some interactions to keep the aged active, but it's different from the human touch. So the high-care, uh, sorry, the high-touch society involving the care industries, I think will get a premium over time. The second one is the high-trust society because uh, ChatGPT can give us all kinds of financial recommendations on where to invest. I'm not sure we will just take it from the ChatGPT. But ultimately, human relationship is about trust. So a high-touch and a high-trust uh, attributes are important going forward. But we, re we need society to recognize this. We need our industry to recognize this. One of my pet peeves is always this, that our, in my mind, many of the industries out in the world do not fully understand the potential of our ITE and polytechnic graduates. If you look at the quality of our IT and polytechnic graduates, they are sometimes, if not often, better than some of the graduates from other people's community colleges and, and uh, other vocational training system. We continue to call our people polytechnic graduates, where some of them have called themselves and refashioned themselves into a university, but actually they, their level is no different. If not, sometimes we are still better than them. But this is where we need a mindset shift and we need a collective effort by all the industry leaders here to go out and tell people and share with them the real capabilities of our people regardless of whether they are called a diploma holder or a degree holder. Look at the skill sets and don't look at just credentials because it does a disservice to the quality of our IT and polytechnic graduates, which is why we want to narrow the so-called wage gap between the degree holders and the diploma holders. I have a wish. I have a wish where we will do more for our IT and polytechnic graduates, not just in the two to three years that they are with us, but throughout life. I don't know, maybe one of these days you all will support my idea that we'll make a commitment to all our IT and polytechnic graduates to keep you and putting more resources to help you to upgrade throughout life so that you can keep pace. Because what worries me is not just the starting pay. What worries me is the wage trajectory as they go out throughout life. It shouldn't be a case whereby 
we descend into a society based on credentialisms. It should be based on a principle of continuous meritocracy where everyone has a chance to prove themselves at different stages in life. Now, that will be my dream. I also have a dream that we will respect and relate to one another according to our abilities and not just on a narrow definition of merit. Because when the next crisis comes, just as COVID has shown us, you never know what kind of skill sets that we all need. The more diverse skill sets that we have in our population, the greater our resilience, the better our chance of defying the odds of history. So that will be some of the things that I hope we can work collectively together to not just improve meritocracy in, for its own sake, but to improve meritocracy in service of our nation so that we can defy the odds of history. So, Minister, your remarks have actually anticipated two of the top-voted questions that have come in online. One being how to reconcile uh, the focus on meritocracy on individual performance vis-à-vis -vis the focus on community. And the other being how meritocracy could evolve as uh, generative AI uh, takes root. wonder whether the other panelists will also like to weigh in on any of these points. Could, could you say that again? Yeah, so the uh, two questions which I think the Minister's um, response has uh, address in some sense is how to reconcile the focus of meritocracy on individual performance with um, the notion of uh, you know this social compact, the community, basically the contributions to community, and the second, how meritocracy could evolve um, in the face of the rise of generative AI, large language models, and so on. Well, as I said earlier on, um, the way we have traditionally understood meritocracy in Singapore, it's been very much focused on the individual striving yes, um, to take advantage of opportunities in order to attain individual success. And, and obviously, that needs to change. Yes, um, I think this, the minister's speech was helpful in, in pointing out the reality that our individual success is by no means due solely to our own hard work or talent and effort. It's, it's been obvious, I think, but it's just that I, I suppose the reality has been subsumed by the more prevalent discourse of, of oh, I did it all on my own and I deserve my success. Um, so that being the case, if we can work towards, I guess, a rethinking of individual success as not being based solely on one's so-called hard work or effort or talent alone. Um, if we recognize that individuals are situated within a wider social context and, and there's also the element of luck, uh, meeting the right people at the right time. If we can, I guess, push this idea across more widely, then it makes more sense to not be so full of hub individual hubris. Uh, and and you know, that, that is, it's not just me, 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 I did it all, I didn't need anybody else, and therefore I don't owe anybody else. Because the equation is, it can get very warped. As I worked hard, I did it all, uh, I didn't need anybody else, so therefore I don't owe anybody anything else. I deserve all the rewards I can get. Um, so I, I think yeah, that, that if we can gradually sort of rework that So to model. add to what Jason mentioned, um, just now, Jason, you also mentioned that uh, this thing about social networks, right? Uh, in Singapore, you know, we never leave things to chances. <laughs> so you ask uh, 
what are we going to do, right, to help share some of this social capital and social networks? In fact, MOE is not going to leave this to chance. I can share with you what we are thinking of. I know many of the alumni would like to help their own respective schools. Uh, that is not wrong in itself, and I encourage alumni to go back and help your schools. But I think we can go beyond that. I think we can cluster the schools together. We can cluster the schools together so that the alumni can go beyond your own schools. In fact, I have appealed to some of the alumni of the illustrious schools to go and serve on boards, on school advisory committees beyond your own boards. Not just to give them ideas, but to help them to open up new networks and new opportunities. What we are also thinking of is that instead of schools competing against one another, we will pair up schools or have clusters of schools working together on different CCAs for people to build the social networks and to share the social capital. So we're not going to leave this to chance because we know the natural tendency is that we will serve our own community, we will withdraw to our own community. But I think we can do this differently in Singapore. Recently, when I went back to RI200, I was happy to hear that many of the students, uh, many of the alumni there have heeded the call and went beyond serving just on the RI advisory committee or the boards. They have gone to other schools, helped them, build the networks, provide them internship opportunities, talk to them. Now, this is important. This is an important part of that social fabric that we want to talk about, where we collectively share our social capital rather than just doing it individually or doing it for our own alumni only. Otherwise, we will need to find different ways to balance this. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with alumni network as if that is all bad and no good. Alumni networks contribute their ways, their resources, their time, talent and treasures back to their school. But alumni networks cannot be a close community as what Daniel was alluding to just now. Otherwise, it will not work. When we were a young nation, the alumni and community networks contributed to the building blocks for our society. But as we become a more mature society, we have to find a new balance. Those same networks cannot be closed circles, as Daniel say. Otherwise, it will lead to, us, lead to our society being fractured by these very networks that help us to bring us to where we are today. So we need to continuously find that balance. But these are part of the design of how our policies to make sure that we keep the social capital and social networks shared and not exclusive. Only so can we temper this, uh, uh, if you like, excesses of uh, any one particular system. And I have one final appeal to uh, all fellow Singaporeans. There's nothing wrong with meritocracy if you keep looking on the right-hand side of the bell curve and seeing someone else doing better than us. Uh, if that inspires all of us to work harder, try a bit more, it's all right. But as we look towards the right-hand side of the bell curve to find inspirations, let us not forget to look at the left end of the bell curve to also understand our responsibilities. Otherwise, we'll be a very sad society. Even at the 99th percentile, we will be very upset that there is one more percent to the right of me on the bell curve. Ever at the 99.9 .9 percentile, I will still be very upset because there's a 0.1 percentile that is to the right of me. And some societies have ended up like that, whereby they are perpetually unhappy because someone else is doing better than them. And in a globally connected world, this, is, this incessant comparison is very obvious 
and very easy to fall prey to. But whether we are at the 99th percentile, 70th percentile, 50th percentile, or even on the 30th percentile, let us always remember there are some people to the left of us on the bell curve that we can all reach out and help. And it is incumbent upon us to do so. It is like what my late grandmother used to teach me. No matter how poor we are, remember, if you still, this is what she told me, remember, if you still can work, you still can take care of yourself and take care of those even poorer than you. That's what my grandmother used to tell me and I remember for life. It doesn't matter whether I'm on the 10th percentile or the 99th percentile in terms of abilities or wealth. If I'm at the 10th percentile, there is 9 more percent that I can help. If I'm the 99th percentile, there's at least 98 percent that I can reach out to. If we can collectively find this balance as individuals and as a society, I think we will be a much more warmer society where we are not caught up with this incessant comparison. Going to a school is not about trying to have our child as the trophy child to brag in front of our relatives. Going to a certain school is to right-side our child to best enable them to learn and to do justice to their blessings. With that, I think we'll be a much more balanced and cohesive society. So thank you. I think there's a gentleman uh, waiting quite patiently to ask this question. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, good morning, uh, speakers. Um, yeah, I would like to touch on meritocracy and mental health and also about the superficiality of leadership positions in higher education afterwards. So recently I had a talk with AP Ho Han Kiat at um, the Youth Leaders Program opening ceremony. And he mentioned this topic on what we do to serve as leaders uh, in our institutes. So another topic I'd like to talk on is also the A-levels, the new system on the 70-point system and how there's been more of an emphasis on holistic admissions and how that actually places more stress on a lot of the students and affects their mental health. I have a friend right now that he's writing also a manifesto on um, the uh, mental health issue that is going on right now. So like back then, people focused 90-pointers, A-levels, get into uh, local university or overseas uh, university. But currently, now that emphasis is placed on also on holistic admissions, people have been entering uh, other leadership positions just for the sake of uh, credentials. As you mentioned, how, how can a school value add and not just based on credentials? And I feel that um, people that join a lot of these leadership positions are not actually interested in value adding to the system, but rather to um, add to themselves what they can gain from the system rather than what they can add to the system. So I would like to ask about how uh, the new education system, the new A-level system, how does it balance uh, mental health and also prevent the superficiality of leadership positions in uh, JC or poly or so forth. Yeah, as an as a ex-poly student, I, I know the struggles of what people have to go through in such situations. Yes. As we are drawing a bit uh, short of time, may I just invite two more questions and then perhaps the panel can take it together and wrap up. So uh, one here and one more there, please. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Abdul Samad. I'm actually from the unions. Huh? 
I don't do classify myself as NTUC because Singaporeans still think NTUC is fair price, not unions. Uh, the unions is uh, something similar to policy studies. We are close to the government, but we are not the government, right? So it's the uh, same, same, but I dare not say it's different. So my point is asking the panelists there, today we are living in a world where we talk about meritocracy, we totally agree, but it's always about paper qualification. You want, just like uh, going to ITE, and then you go to further studies, get yourself a diploma, and then you encourage them to further studies. Are we then actually disrupting the individual's qualities to actually navigate themselves and make themselves more impressed as based on the skills that they have? Just like you, we ask, we need migrant workers, we need electricians, straights, but why are we paying foreigners? Because why in Singapore we are drilled from young. When you go to ITE, you can upgrade, go to polytechnic, you can upgrade, go to university. We are always into that kind of search for a paper qualification, double degrees. Can we be on well, a journey towards the future meritocracy? It is not the degree that counts. It is not the diploma that counts. It is what is the value that the individual can bring forward on the table. He may not be someone that is good. I have told myself, I don't, I don't have a degree at all because I'm very bad in studying. I ended only at the polytechnic a diploma. But I think that is the best that I can do. As if I study a degree, I don't qualify. I didn't see myself as going further. But I, what we can do is, uh, how do I bring forward new skills, new areas that I can learn that can be a more beneficial, not just to me, but to the whole society. So my question to the panel, will we see this kind of future moving forward in Singapore? <laughs> Examples of people that are successful based on meritocracy model, but not necessarily dependent on how many degrees and how many professional certifications that you have. Thank you. Maybe quite briefly, just a last question. Hello, um, good morning speakers. Very glad to be here today. So uh, my question actually concerns the adoption of meritocracy as like a collective society-wide value and henceforth like a personal value. Um, while we would like to believe that the system currently allows people to pursue their own blessings, I think the fact is that most people in Singapore right now pursue money and that is sort of their definition of success. So when we have meritocracy as a value in such a system, in such a capitalist system, I think it, is, it has been said already that it allows the rich to continue to propagate their wealth while still convincing themselves that they are of their moral values. Um, and when we define merit as simply the skill set that allows us to make a living in the world, um, should we not be concerned that those who determine this skill set are often the rich and the powerful, and they likewise have their stakes in perpetuating the unequal status quo? So my question is, if this meritocratic illusion already permeates like all of society, and the focus on making money rather than individual fulfillment still drives many, should we not maybe shift the focus towards more compassionate values that promote gratitude and generosity? I would argue that ironically these values are more likely to lead to a truly meritocratic society where the pursuit of fulfillment drives generosity rather than the pursuit of money um, chasing fulfillment. Thank you. We may not have time to analyze these in depth, but perhaps uh, panel members could give a, a, a short response and a final word as well, please. Okay, maybe I can try to link all three responses in together. I, I would disagree the last. Um, uh, question and, 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 and the comments. I think a lot of 
young people especially are now not looking to become wealthy. They are looking for fulfillment. They are looking to fulfill their aspirations, to make their dreams come true. And the dreams are very varied. They are very diverse. Right? And so they are actually looking across the various uh, IHLs or other you know, institutions that provide um, learning courses and so on and so forth um, to always better themselves. Um, and in response to the, to, to the gentleman from the union, I have very interesting cases of uh, students who have graduated, so university students from NUS, who are now looking at causes in polytechnics, who are looking for causes in polytechnics that are overseas too because they can't find the causes here, to look for specific causes that could fulfill their aspirations. For example, art therapy, uh, dance therapy, or many other kind of uh, variants right, of all these different aspirations that they want to fulfill. There are also now non-university graduates who are looking to look for causes, micro-credentials, like offered by NUS, for example, right, to do them right, so they can educate themselves and they can fulfill their aspirations. So I think the world is changing. And that is why that is the impetus. I think there's the movement from the old meritocracy to the new meritocracy. So we are not moving from old to new just because we are reacting to market forces. We are also reacting, I think, to a generational change in which people are now aspiring to different things um, rather than just making money. And I think that's an important point that we need to recognize. Um, to the last point on mental health, I think in that move to the new meritocracy, I think the increasing focus should be on, and, and one of the words that Minister brought up uh, is, 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 is really important, part of the three Ds that he mentioned, um, distill, discern, and discovery. The discernment part, I think, is, is, is something that we need to teach um, and to learn as a skill. We need students to be able to look into themselves, discover who they are, um, find out what their desires and what, what their aspirations are, so they're able to discern, then therefore, what are the pathways they can take in life. And I think that is the way that will shift their focus away from grades to one point, one mark difference to the, to the right side of the bell curve. Um, and this will really help, I think, in mental health. Because once, I think, the alignment with personal growth, with discernment, of one's trajectory in life and one's purpose in life. And that is, one, that, that is when you, you start judging yourself right, and looking down on yourself. And that's when you, you start to re recover, I think, the mental health aspect right, of one's purpose in life. Right? Thanks. Um, with respect to the acquisition of academic credentials, I guess it's not as straightforward as it might seem because for one thing, um, certain jobs require university qualifications as a prerequisite to entry and, and to subsequent professional accreditation. Uh, so, uh, so until you can persuade the relevant professional bodies otherwise, that's pretty much going to remain the case. So, so you, you can't just say you're just going to let people acquire on-the-job experiences and <coughs> do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, and become a skilled professional. Um, at, at the same time, though, um, it's not as though anybody's talking about the total um, abandonment of these credentials and in favour of, say, practical workplace skills. It's, it's, it's all about that tricky balance of not letting the mere possession of academic qualifications or credentials um, diminish 
the importance of other aspects, such as whether you have practical workplace skills, whether you're actually contributing towards the wider society. So I think it's not a cut and dried matter um, about, you know, okay, we, we don't need these sorts of academic credentials at all. At the same time, though, I know that there is scope for some kind of flexibility in certain cases. For, for instance, um, there can be alternative forms of assessment put in place besides all these certificates and diplomas and degrees to assess. We, we have to ask ourselves, I guess, this fundamental question, why is there this need for these qualifications? And, and a lot of the time, it's to assess somebody's suitability, competence for something or other. So, so why do we need these sorts of credentials that, that you, 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 you can be a licensed plumber, a licensed electrician, a licensed pilot, a licensed um, surgeon, and so on. So it's, it's, it, we're also talking about you know, wider issues such as public safety. And, and yes, it's, so I would say that it's a, I would urge a more nuanced, I guess, um, approach towards this issue of whether we, you know, we need to keep on and on acquiring academic credentials. Yeah. And the last word for Minister Chan, please. Um, just uh, three short responses, maybe two short responses, and one story to uh, end of the day. Uh, first one, uh, we fully agree with you, which is why I keep saying that meritocracy cannot just be about personal achievements. Meritocracy must also be about collective contributions. It's not just about personal achievements, but about contributions, how we define and celebrate the contributions of diverse people, each according to their needs. If everyone can do justice to their blessings, and then they contribute to the best of their ability, then we are at peace with ourselves. And it's not about an incessant comparison with somebody else. Yes, look at the right end of the bell curve if you draw inspiration from that, but never forget the left end of the bell curve and our responsibility to them. Second, uh, reference to what Samad says, indeed, it is not about academic paper qualifications that's most important. It is about the currency of the skill sets that's most important. And even those students who have done very well in their academic pursuits, we want them to remember, is what you are learning, what you are able to master current and relevant to the world. And academic qualifications signal certain things as Jason suggested, but it is not the be all and end all. In fact, for many of the progressive companies today, when you go and look for a piece of, uh, you go for a job interview, the f they're not going to ask you whether you know yesterday's solutions to yesterday's problem. Mm. They're going to set you a problem with no solutions yet. And they want to see how you can collaborate with others from different backgrounds, different disciplines, and how you can create something new. That is a new skill set. So yes, indeed, we are not just about academic qualifications. Many of the things that the unions are working with SIT, SUSS, are the work-study diploma program, the work-study degree program, is a combination of academic rigor with currency of skills. And that's what we encourage more and more of our people to pick up throughout their life. Uh, the last 
point I want to make is response to the first uh, comment about uh, stress and uh, whether the 90-point uh, system or the 70-point university admission system uh, is more stressful. And I will round up today with a story on choices. Uh, this is a real story. I went to one uh, very good JC, and I, so I asked them, and this was, by the way, before I announced the policy change. So, I, so they all told me, Minister, we are all stressed out by the curriculum. So I said, oh, okay, so there's a problem. So I said, what should we do? So, so I suggested, I just pulling the legs of the students, right? Why don't we cut the syllabus by 50%? Then you'll have time. You won't be so stressed out. All of them almost fell off the chair. Then they look at me like, is he serious? After a long pause, someone said, Minister, Please don't do that. We'll be more stressed. So I said, oh, that's very interesting. Why will you be more stressed? Say, Minister, in the past, we compete on this amount of uh, uh, material. If you cut it by 50%, all of us will be competing on this amount of materials. And everyone will try to polish their grades to achieve 99.999. Whereas in the past, we might just be competing for 99 marks. Now it's 99.999. So we'll be more stressed. So in the spirit of ribbling the students, I say, oh, I see. So in that case, I should double your syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they fell off the chair. They must be thinking that this minister is off his mind. <laughs> Why do I share this story? Because I followed up with a question to the students. I asked, if indeed tomorrow we reduce the syllabus by half, what will you do with the time freed up? They all looked at me. They thought very hard and they thought very long. But sadly, not many of the students there were able to tell me what they will use the extra time freed up. Now, to me, that worries me. Because I share with them this. In life, even if you score four A's or however many A's, you score GPA of 3.5 or 4.0 or whatever your score is, is plus minus a bit from one another. The question is, when you graduate from the JC in this case, do you understand your strengths and weaknesses? Do you have something that is unique about yourself that will make you stand out in a crowd beyond your GPA and your academic credentials, which are plus minus a bit from one another? If everyone in Singapore, every Singaporean, understand their strengths and weaknesses as they go through the education system, build on their strengths, overcome their weaknesses, then we'll be a much more happier, much more contented and much more balanced society. And the other point about that is I wanted to impress upon them this, and that was what my senior taught me. He often asked me when I was much younger, he said, Chan Chun Seng, what is a hobby? Is a hobby something you do when you have time, or is a hobby something you find time to do? He reminded me that if a hobby is something I do when I have time, I will never have a hobby because there's Parkinson's law, work expands to fill time. 
if a hobby is something I find time to do and I learn and I hone at my own time, at my own pace, then I will keep learning. And this is a lesson that I learned throughout life and I hope that my students, all my students will remember this. Even if you fulfill all the academic requirements, you are plus minus a bit from one another. What I hope every student will understand is what makes them special. What makes them special so that when they go for their first job interview and subsequent job interview, they will be able to confidently tell their potential employers that this is the value that I can bring to your company and this is the special skill sets that I can complement your workforce. Only so can we distinguish ourselves as individuals. And only so will we be able to distinguish ourselves as a country. Because in this troubled world, we have to keep asking ourselves, what makes Singapore special? And Singapore cannot be special because we just fulfill the run-of-the-mill criteria like anybody else. We have to constantly seek out and ask ourselves, how can we bring something special to the world so that we can entrench our relevance and not be easily bypassed? And if Singapore is to do that, I need every Singaporean, every student, starting from young, to know that the education system is here to support you to understand your strengths and weaknesses, and we are here to give you the best support possible so that each and every one of them do justice to their respective blessings. And when they have done so, they are filled with a sense of responsibility and gratitude to take care of those who are less privileged and less fortunate than them. If we can do so, then we have meritocracy with Singaporean characteristics, and that will bring us to SG100 and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Minister Chan and distinguished panel members for these insights and takeaways. And thank you also to all the audience here for your attention and for contributing to a very lively discourse.